Hello, thank you for joining us today uh, for the fourth episode of Pumentum's monthly podcast, Social X. Today I have with me uh, Tosca Bruno von Weifeiken, who is the director of the Transnational NGO Initiative at Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, which is in Syracuse, New York, in the United States. Uh, she does a lot of leadership training with uh, leaders of NGOs and works on some change management initiatives, which we're looking forward to hearing more from her about. Thank, Thank you so much, Tasca, for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So could you explain a little bit about your current role? So as you said, I'm the director of a program called the Transnational NGO Initiative at Syracuse University. Um, and so we are based in as you said, the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, which is a graduate-level um, social sciences and public management school here in the U.S., in New York, in Syracuse. Um, and you heard already that the word citizenship is part and parcel of the Maxwell School's name, and that's significant because it means that our school ties the role of citizens and their active citizenship in, in improving the world into the, the, the work, the, the, the academic work on, on public management. Um, why do we call our initiative the transnational NGO initiative instead of the international NGO initiative, which after all amongst practitioners is a much more well-known term? That has a very obscure kind of academic reason. Um, but basically, it means we focus on those NGOs that work across at least one national boundary, often many more than one, uh, often global or regional, etc., within the world, but at least across one national boundary. And that's why it's called Transnational NGO Initiative. And how did you kind of get to this point today and doing what you're doing? You know, what's your background and what have you done in your career up to this point? Okay. Um, so... I have about 30 years of relevant experience, and I call the nature of my experience by now that of a pracademic. Now, that's not a term I invented, so I don't want to claim that, but I do think it fits me well, so I've adopted it. That means that in my current role at the Transnational NGO Initiative, I try to be helpful by bridging academic knowledge production and diffusion of knowledge, if you will, and NGO practice. So in other words, while we are in academia, we really try to be relevant to NGO practitioners and particularly to NGO leaders. Um, I'm a pracademic because I worked about 16 years in international development in a Dutch think tank. I'm originally from the Netherlands. I worked in the United Nations at the country level. I worked in the World Bank, both uh, at the here in D.C. at the headquarters level, but also four years in Vietnam. Um, I worked... Um, with an international NGO in Cambodia. And then I accidentally ended up in academia and did that for the last 15 years in this role as, um, as director of, of the Transnational NGO Initiative. And now I'm about to make another interesting leap, but I'm sure we'll get to that towards the end of this interview. Yeah. And you said you kind of ended, in, ended up in academia by accident. How did you, how did you kind of end up there? It totally was, I did. Ne I, I would have never thought I would end up in academia. I didn't think, I wouldn't have thought I'm suitable, suitable for it. 
But I think I, I carved out a space, if you will. So I just was hired about um, 15 years ago to ground a brand new initiative that is focused on the governance, leadership and effectiveness of transnationally operating NGOs in practice. So even though it was set up within academia at Syracuse University, we wanted to be relevant, as I said before, to practitioners. Um, And yeah, that's just how it accidentally happened. And then I made something useful, I hope, for the sector out of that. And so tell me a little more about that. How, uh, what's, what is the, some of the work that you do with leaders of transnational or international NGOs? Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe just taking one step first, one step back first. Um, so we do do also research. Of course, we're in academia after all, both um, academic research. We also do uh, a fair amount of applied research that is sometimes not always commissioned by INGOs. We do, of course, do student education. So I said already we're graduate school, so graduate teaching. Um, We have a visiting NGO fellow who teaches, if you will, and trains students. We um, help with internship and career advice, et cetera. That's the, the student education piece. But our practitioner engagement work, as we call it, is is a full 50% of our work. And within that, we focus indeed on two things, and you mentioned them in the introduction. One is senior leadership training and also advising NGOs around how to institutionalize um, better practices um, around leadership development within their organizations. And the other piece is around change leadership and change management. What we do there, and if you want, we can later on go into that, but we have been um, helping a number of big NGOs to both reflect upon and learn from um, the efficacy of their change leadership and change management as their organizations went through very big attempts at organizational change. So I'm not talking about, oh, um, changing one human resource system or changing one policy, not even about just changing the organizational structure, but changing multiple uh, elements of the organization in, in, in one big change initiative. Change leadership and change management is highly complex, and the sector does not have a lot of experience in it yet. So we are trying to help some of these big NGOs on their request to to become better in this by being more reflective about it, sometimes through doing independent evaluations on their request, uh, independent assessments, and sometimes through doing case studies or or reports. And we've done that work with Save the Children uh, International, with Oxfam International, with Care International, and we've done a lot of work with Amnesty International as well. Do you think that I mean, change is hard no matter what, right? Yeah, do you, absolutely. <laughs> but do you think that change uh, management initiatives are particularly difficult or the particular challenges you can speak to for international NGOs versus other organizations or other sectors? Yeah, I could approach that from several uh, angles. So first of all, as you know, um, on the one hand, many employees or staff who work in INGOs are highly mission-oriented, Right. Um, But they don't always want to be honest or admit that actually they're on a daily basis, their motivation, their behaviors, their actions, their habits 
are not just driven by uh, mission focus, but also driven by self-interest, whether that is self-interest at the individual level or at the their business unit uh, or department team level, whatever you call it, or even at the organizational level. So, for instance, there's a strong focus on organizational self-survival, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the mantra always is we are here to work ourselves out of out of work or out of business, but it is my observation that that is not really an honest reflection of what's going on. Uh, so that is that is one one of the issues. Secondly, as I said, many NGOs, as you know, underinvest tremendously in the capacity and infrastructure of the organizations because there's always this big push. Oh, we need to make change happen through programs. We need to make lives better, etc. We need to save another child, etc. And so the idea of investing in capacity is is um, is not easily fully accepted, um, and that, and also because we have the overhead myth, this idea that NGOs need to spend as little money as possible on on their um, their uh, fundraising as well as their administration and capacity, etc. So, for all these reasons, change management capacity is also very um, very underdeveloped, I would say. Yet. There is the aspiration, especially in the last five to ten years, and I see even more of that coming, to engage in large-scale organizational change processes. And a combination of underinvestment in capacity and big aspirations around change management projects, of course, there's a direct tension between that. Yeah, that makes sense. So all that taken into consideration, have you worked on a specific... I guess, project or process with an organization that went particularly well? Like, is there an example of an organization or a time that you could see um, they were really putting all the best practices into place and as a result they kind of succeeded in in adjusting or changing things to the way that they wanted to? Mm. Yeah, so I need to be a little careful uh, because the work that we do here is is based on, on – um, on confidentiality. I would imagine, yeah, you don't need to name anything by name. So <laughs> I'm not going to name specific organizations, but I will say, yeah, I, I definitely have seen uh, differences in capacity. And that is actually, uh, Caitlin, not just about technical capacity. It's also about things like political savviness. And I mean political with a small P now. So if we think about the organization, not just uh, as a, well, amongst others, as a, as a group of people, and groups that are constantly jockeying for power, right, that are um, jostling for, for power, that are jockeying for attention of top leadership, jockeying for budgets, etc. And show leaders have been somewhat reluctant um, to acknowledge that, that internal politics is just as active a game, if you will. In other words, they are more and more uh, aware of and interested in um, externally in the programming that they do to be politically astute, but their knowledge around how change happens in the world is not considered to be relevant for how change happens in the organization. And that leads to sometimes botched um, botched exercises, if you will. That's only one of many reasons. I'll mention one more, and that is, um, so the, the topic of organizational culture is very Mm, there's limited understanding in the sector, in my view, around what that really is. And culture and strategy are often confused. Mm. So if I, for brevity's sake, define culture as the set of 
daily repetitive habits and behaviors of staff that in NGOs that's, that um, certain behaviors and, and habits are constantly rewarded and others are disincentivized. Um, the idea that you can change culture um, in a year or two is, frankly, if you look at the, the literatures in the private sector and the public sector, is just a gross um, overestimation of, if that's the right English, of, of um, what you can do in a, in a short period of time. And if you don't even, are not really clear how, what organizational culture is, then that becomes even more uh, important. And why I'm emphasizing that, because organizational culture is undermining a lot of change uh, management processes. So there too, I couldn't see a need for the sector to step up in terms of capabilities. That's so interesting, the cross between strategy and culture. I mean, I can see how those would be, people would confuse one for the other. Very easily, including by some high-level leaders and and uh, well-known analysts and so on. It's still uh, sometimes misunderstood. And I would imagine the strategy, actually, you can change quicker. Yes. The culture takes a lot more time. A lot more time. If you look at the literature, and when I say the literature, I don't just mean the academic literature. I'm actually more focused here on the kind of the what academics call the gray literature, the literature that is relevant to practitioners. In the private sector, it's been known for a long time that changing culture to the extent that you succeed at all is easily taking at least five to seven, if not seven to ten years. Wow. Right? I have leaders, heard leaders say, oh, I changed uh, our culture in a year, and I have difficulty um, believing that. Yeah. Great. So you mentioned training, obviously, kind of leadership training is one of the things that you do. And that is something that caught the attention of Humentum as we were trying to develop some some training for this area that's clearly there's clearly a need. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the Agile Leadership Flex course that uh, you and Ross put together and kind of that process and that research? Right. And I also would like to to credit Lisa, Lisa Dundon, the media producer, who was phenomenal also to work with. Um, so a little step back. So as I told you before, we offer uh, senior leadership training of a residential face-to-face nature. We do that in, in, in Syracuse about once a year. That is called the Transnational NGO Leadership Institute. And out of that came some spin-off requests by big NGOs like ActionAid, uh, International, Oxfam International, Civicus, uh, Amnesty International and Greenpeace International to do a, a specialized, a customized program for them, also residential. So face-to-face, we've also done that for six years, and we've done some other residential training for Population Council here in the U.S. Uh, Umentum colleagues noticed that, and they asked us to provide the content for a brand-new course uh, called as you said, uh, Agile Leadership Behavior. And I think Flex is in the Flex, title. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and it was a lot of fun to work with uh, with Ross and Lisa and with Chris uh, on this. Yeah, it would be great to hear an overview of the content of the course, just what it's about, and also the research behind uh, the content. The reason, I think, why, why Umentum was interested in the topic of Agile Leadership Behavior and I'm talking about individual leadership behavior, by the way, not collective, is because, as we all know, the external environment for INGOs and also for national NGOs has been changing rapidly and will continue to do that. Agility of leadership behaviors is really important, both externally in the environment in which NGOs operate, but also internally within the organization. So um, as we all know, when in our leadership, we bring 
personality traits and characteristics into our leadership that that inform how we behave on a day-to-day basis, um, those kind of behaviors are not that easy to change. But leaders can opt to choose certain leadership um, lenses, if you will, strategically. And uh, that that's a learned behavior, so amenable for a course. Um, so what we did is we used a theoretical framework, but a framework, and by the way, it was not designed by the Maxwell School, so not taking credit for that, uh, designed by uh, two uh, authors, Bowman and Deal, called The Four Frames, um, Strategic Approach to Leadership Behaviors, uh, that we have used many a time in our NGO leadership training, the face-to-face programs, as well as in the Maxwell School's um, executive leadership training for government, um, uh, mid to senior level leaders all over the world. Um, And that, the four frames, um, says that that senior leaders really need to have a capability of not applying one frame to a certain context that they are facing as leaders, but at least four frames. So let me just explain briefly what they are. One is um, a a frame called the structural frame, and that is that leaders may look at organizations primarily as a set of boxes, as an organogram, like in the case of Umentum, right? As a set of boxes that tell where people are situated, what their positional uh, title is, boxes for information flows, for decision-making, et cetera, right? That's a structural frame. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, by the way, when they think about organizational change, they think primarily in terms of structural change. But actually, it's about a lot more. That is how I was thinking of it. (laughs) Exactly. And and that is is very normal. Um, The second frame is the human resource frame. That has not so much something to do with the formal function of human resources in an NGO, but with the fact that the organization is not just a set of boxes and decision-making flows, etc. It's also the organization is a family, by which I mean people want to belong, have a sense of belonging in the organization, that they are part of a, of a bigger whole, that their needs are being taken care of, right? So that's the human resource frame. The third frame is the political frame, and I already kind of referred to it. And that's the idea that organizations are also a jungle, They're also a place where people are constantly fighting for top leadership attention. They're jockeying, as I said before, for power. They're forming coalitions, factions. Um, They're elbowing, right? They're trying to get on the agenda of certain decision-making processes. And sometimes they muscle, really. And there are some practices around that that some people will look down upon. However, it's a reality, and we want our, our leaders to, uh, to have a very value-neutral position towards it happens. Power is part of NGO organizational happening. And so being skillful in how to uh, increase your power as an individual leader, in a, in a, but politics with a small p, so not petty politics, but politics, the use of power in order to further the mission of the organization. I want to be really clear about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how to be skillful in that is 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 very important, and it's often kind of looked down upon a little bit in the NGO sector. And but as a senior leader, that is part of your reality. And then finally, the uh, the symbolic frame, that's the most abstract one. 
um, a little harder to understand for some leaders. So this is the idea that leaders need to provide meaning to employees. And I don't mean the kind of meaning of family, like the human resource framework, the belonging, but more what is the higher, the transcendent value of what I'm doing in the NGO, right? And how can leaders use pictures, symbols, stories, storytelling, part of your role, um, to almost of a religious kind um, or as if you're, as a leader, you're an actor on a stage. Everybody's watching you all the time. And so what do you portray? What is the narrative that you use in order to inspire people, provide meaning of that kind of higher level uh, kind? So those are the four frames that the, uh, the Agile Leadership Flex course is, is focusing on. The, the flex course is something people can take online and kind of at their own time, just like all of Humentum's suite of Abs- flex online Absolutely. course offerings. Yes. Um, I know that it was kind of a fun process to design it, uh, it with Ross and that you said it was a good learning experience. It can was. You, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I had never developed an, an e-course in, in my life, but I was very keen to learn the skills. And it was a great pleasure to learn it this way. So basically, Ross and Lisa, the, the media producer, and I worked in what I will call a sprint mode, where we, for two or three weeks we worked uh, you know, several hours per day in a concentrated way on this to develop the content. And um, and then, of course, Lisa kept kept working on the, the media part. We recorded videos, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I loved the experience because Umentum, you guys know what you're doing when it comes to, to e-training. And for us in the Maxwell School, we have just a couple of years ago started to do um, e, uh, well, online education as in academic, uh, you know, programs for, for credit, for academic pre- credit. But that's a relatively new experience. So we were really keen on also collaborating with Umentum on learning more from you about how to offer e-training. And I feel I was lucky in terms of getting this contribution. And I would do it anytime again. It was a good experience. It's kind of a unique course in the end because aren't a lot of trainings for kind of senior leaders usually kind of in-person retreats where you have to go. And it just, I don't I don't see a lot out there personally that's designed for that C-suite level online. So it's... That's right. And I, I also love the platform that we used. Again, I'm new to all of this, but I, I love Curator. And yeah, so I'm, I'm quite happy with how, how it came out. And I hope leaders will find it useful. Great. Uh, so switching gears a little bit, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the future of NGO leadership and what you think the leaders of tomorrow will look like. Uh, what, what qualities do you think they're going to really need uh, to be successful? Yeah, I'll just highlight a few things because one can, a big topic. It's a big topic, yeah. So we don't have enough time to look at it comprehensively for sure. Um, so that agility of both leadership, individual behavior, but also of uh, organizational agility and how leaders can create uh, a climate for organizations to be able to be agile is definitely one of them. With that comes intense uh, a capacity to be intensively self-reflective and self-aware in terms of, again, your individual leadership behavior, but also uh, to the leader as learner is, is an important topic in our mind. Um, as my colleague Catherine Gerard says, um, how can the organization learn when the leader cannot learn him or herself? So that's a second uh, characteristic. The other thing I would say is there's an interesting 
trend going on in some of the bigger NGOs around, um, you know, there's a form of leadership that's called transformational leadership that is being set aside uh, from transactional leadership. So transactional leadership being um, I will, I'm an employee, you're my boss, I will give you eight hours of my time every day in exchange for a salary. Okay, mm. That's a simple definition, but still. Transformational leadership is where you, thinking back to that symbolic leadership, where you are able to inspire me, to motivate me, to call up my intrinsic motivation, to go over and beyond what the job requires of me in a formal sense. So transformational leadership has caught the attention of a number of INGOs for quite a while now. Within that, there is now an, an interest among some in uh, what some would call post-heroic leadership. Uh, so this is the sense that I am not necessarily needing to be a leader who is a big driver, who's charging ahead, and everybody will follow me, and I have the big vision, but a more uh, collaborative form of leadership where leadership is shared up and down and sideways through the organization and where collaborative skills um, are incredibly important. Um, another manifestation of that type of leadership is feminist leadership, which is kind of ascending within NGOs, at least some of them, not just because the Me Too movement, but that is definitely mm. has been one, one, one reason. Uh, but the idea that um, we need to raise the ability of NGO leaders to to engage in this shared leadership approach that yet is agile. And there are real tensions there because collaborative, not consensus, but collaborative um, decision-making modes, for instance, um, shared leadership does include more transaction costs in terms of the time that it takes to take decisions. How to instill that shared leadership across the organization but yet remain agile is a really interesting conundrum. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in kind of your thoughts on that. Have you seen shared leadership work effectively or is it is it more difficult for that to be an effective model than? Well, um, and Joe's have, have um, used participatory, highly consult consultative decision-making modes for quite a long time. That's kind of a, a common feature of many cultures, I think, right? Yeah, uh, yeah characteristic and that NGO employees in, uh, insist on. Um, the trick is then how to make it not too slow and not agile and how to not how to for that not to mean that your quality of decision-making goes down to the lowest common denominator, right? Um, so it's a little hard for me to, um, to without mentioning names again, right. to highlight very specific organizations. But I have found it interesting that some of the bigger NGOs that I've worked with, such as ActionAid International and Oxford International, are increasingly focusing on this transformational leadership that also says that leaders need to be, by the way, intensely aware of the power that they hold. And with that, in the recent uh, last couple of years, organizational diversity and inclusion strategies are also coming into play, where the power that you hold, the privileges that you hold, right, depending on your, your class, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your ability, etc., are also part, part of the picture and that we need to be self very self-aware around that. Right, because that will always come into play. Yes. Yeah. I'm just very interested in kind of that shared leadership model. I feel like it it could present additional, you know, it's it's if done well could be 
incredibly beneficial. And then there's also additional challenges that aren't there if you're really not using that model. Um, and speaking of challenges and kind of the future leaders of tomorrow, what do you think kind of unique challenges they will face that maybe past leaders didn't have to worry as much about? Well, one of the most important one is to what extent will, especially those uh, NGOs that have been founded in the global north, under what circumstances um, can they remain relevant and credible and legitimate, uh, given that there are so many competitors are now out there in what is a very crowded marketplace. Um, whether you're talking about, of course, Global South-founded NGOs, whether national or regional or global, whether you're talking about digital campaigning platforms or digital fundraising platforms, which completely take out the role of the intermediary, whether you're talking about social enterprises, impact investors, etc., etc., and even co- corporations like Patagonia that are or profit yet play a, a slightly different role. So there's a lot more competition now in in the civil society sector. Um, and so uh, how does the role of INGOs need to change in order and and probably also um, how does the size of INGOs need to change uh, in order to uh, re to retain a role, even though it's a changed role, is is I think one of those um, capacities that future leaders need to be really focused on. Yeah. And then how about opportunities maybe for future leaders that past leaders didn't have? And you mentioned technology and kind of these digital platforms. That's one that springs to my mind is something new that affects everything. It changes everything. And maybe how does that affect future leaders? What opportunities might they have from, with that or other things that are just they're newer elements. Do you mean opportunities for NGO programming and activities or for them as leaders? At them as leaders or, or programming, I mean, either. Or either, okay. So in terms of programming, um, so we now have a number of big um, digital um, campaigning platforms, right? Like Avaz, Global One, Change.org, right? And many national platforms, right? Here in the US, MoveOn.org. Um, I don't think that that is sufficiently on the horizon of leaders of traditional, what we call brick and mortar NGOs. Yet there are, from a programming and from a campaigning perspective, interesting opportunities for collaboration, uh, not just on campaigns. Uh, advocacy campaigns, but also learning from these more um, kind of Silicon Valley uh, culture, um, very flat organizations um, that where power is very devolved uh, and much more agile, etc. There's lots of learning opportunities, even about leadership behaviors, right? Uh, so that that's um, one uh, aspect I I would say. You already mentioned the the ability to learn is is now highly digitalized and can be done in bits and pieces, etc., so that people can do it on the fly to some extent, although I would say that the face-to-face component is still added value for some learning offerings. Um, yeah, I think that those are the main things that come to mind immediately. So what do you think is next for you in the future in this space? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go through another um, a change, if you will. So I have worked in a in a think tank in the United Nations, in the World Bank, um, in NGOs and and with NGOs and in academia. And so the next phase for me is to um, 
start my own consulting practice, uh, which is actually happening as soon as the 1st of January of 2019, so very soon. It's going to be called Five Oaks Consulting because that's the English translation of my Dutch last name. Um, And it's going to focus on um, my, my aim will be to offer value to senior leaders in primarily mid to large size globally operating NGOs that have fairly complex forms, such as confederations, federations, networks, etc., um, to offer value to those leaders in a couple of areas. One, organizational effectiveness, that probably doesn't surprise you. Two, change management. Three, uh, leadership development. And four, organizational culture. And then within that, I have some sub Uh, specializations such as feminist leadership as well as gender and leadership, which is not the same, and organizational inclusion and diversity strategies. So I'm really looking forward to the challenge of um, owning my own um, practice, owning my own business. Uh, I've been consulting part-time for about eight to ten years, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to giving this a go. It's There is some risk involved. There is, there is entrepreneurial uh, instincts involved, but... Uh, I, uh, I feel good about it. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you. And if our listeners and viewers want to get in touch with you, uh, do you have a website or anything? How, how should they do that? I, I certainly will as of the 1st of January 2019, and that will be fiveoaksconsulting.org. Pasca, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to hear more about you know what you do, about leadership in the NGO sector, and about the Agile Leadership Course with Humentum. Uh, so thank you for taking the time. It truly was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this fourth episode of Social X, Humentum's monthly podcast. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on YouTube or follow us on SoundCloud for future episodes.